You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Schiffman. On this show, I interview people with lived and learned experiences on the subjects of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy. Occasionally, we talk about other topics as well. On this week's show, I interview a longtime drug use advocate and the founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, Ethan Nadelman. But first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you could always win when you just struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new beginning. You just struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you just struggle. And you can bounce back, just that day. Come on in, listening to just struggle. just struggle. just struggle. just struggle. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Welcome back. Oh man, uh, it's great to be back with you all. So much has happened since the fall uh, when I when I said goodbye from season two uh, with that amazing episode with Nzinga Harrison. You heard a lot of it if you tuned into last week's show where it was just me in front of the mic in the recording booth which I'm not using today because, as you heard on last week, it's still a little echoey, so we've got some work to do there. Um, Sort of a very short recap. Uh, You heard from me back in February when I re-released the incredible conversation with David Poses, uh, who obviously is no longer with us. Um, That that was a big blow to the entire community. Uh, From me, since, since you last heard from me, I moved. Uh, I'm now in in a different office, different house, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, in, in actually, as I'm recording this, my office is in shambles. We're we're having work done, and I I had to uh, ask the 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 guys working on on this part of the house to to leave for a couple hours so I could do this uh, intro and all that. And, and also, I'm I got an interview for the show uh, in in an hour. Or so, um, yeah. It, it, that that's happening. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the biggest thing is obviously what's coming in two weeks. Uh, made it will drop in two weeks. Um, yeah, that's uh, man. It's just crazy to me. You know, I, right before I started recording this, I was finishing episode nine, sort of the mastering of that episode, which means I only have one more to do and then all the shit around it. But it's crazy that we're finally coming to a conclusion here after, uh, you know, Sarah and I first talked about this last June or July. The work started in August, and now it's dropping. So that's amazing. Uh, sort of a scheduling note on that. You're going to hear this episode today, obviously. Uh, next week, another normal episode with a great guest. You're, you're going to love it. And then the week after, uh, we'll be off. Uh, that w- We'll just be dropping um, episode one from Made It on this feed uh, as a reminder to everybody to go subscribe to Made It. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes. Uh, quick note on that. If you're on the mailing list, I was let n- uh, a couple people let me know that the link to this show worked just fine. The link to Made It for some reason did not work. And what was so crazy is I went and tested that link when I got those emails, people letting me know, and it worked just fine. It must have been a formatting thing or something in the email. I have no idea. Um, but the, you can find the link to made its, uh, stream in this, uh, in the show notes, go subscribe two weeks, two weeks until that drops. So today's episode is with a guy, 
that I have admired for a long time. Uh, he has been in the scenes, honestly, honestly longer than I've been alive, which is incredible. He founded the precursor to what is now the Drug Policy Alliance and then founded the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, so he, he he is the OG in that respect. He is Ethan Nadelman. Um, I had to hold back. We The show could have just been him telling stories for, for an hour and that would have been fine with me because he is such an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, but I wanted, <laughs> I wanted it to be more than that. As you'll hear, Ethan has a great show. It's called psychoactive. Um, you, you, you know, if you listen to made it, I, I shout out psychoactive in the beginning. Um, it's one of those shows that I actually do really listen to. I, I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of them. Uh, I've, I've repped some podcasts that I, I don't listen to regularly because I like the people who do them or, or the subject matter or whatever. Ethan's show Psychoactive is all of those. I like Ethan a lot. I think he is incredibly knowledgeable on this the, the subjects of drug use, drug policy. Um, I like the show itself. You know, not that's not always the case. There are a lot of people uh, who do really interesting work that I find don't find the shows that interesting. Eat that's not the case with Psychoactive. I love Psychoactive. And I think that he's, you know, uh, Ethan and I agree on on way more than we disagree on, way more. And even the things that we don't, I, I'm interested to hear his perspective because obviously he is an expert in this arena. And so I want to hear where he's coming from with this stuff. And that's something I admire about Ethan is that he doesn't uh, just kind of throw stuff out there. He is very um, uh, measured in that respect and, and really helps people understand where he's coming from. So um, this is a really great conversation with Ethan. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I, <laughs> it's it's funny. I had to like remind myself what I say. Uh, I went to record the theme uh, and I like forgot how to do that. I, I was like, what do I do on this? What do I, <laughs> what do I say? It's been so long. Um, and, and if you hear it, it's a little choppy. I'm not quite back to, you know, the, the skills haven't come completely back yet, but hopefully by next week, I'll remember how to do this. And, um, you know, the, the sign off at the end of this, I actually stopped and went, Oh my God, what is my catchphrase? <laughs> oh, it's been a long time, but it's great to be back with you all. Season three of the choose your struggle podcast is here. Uh, let's get right into it with the incredible, the wonderful, the knowledgeable Ethan Nadelman. If you've been following the show for a while, you know I'm a huge fan of Roadrunner CBD. I use all of their products. Seriously, I run through a tub of their muscle gel every couple of weeks because I'm in my 30s and everything hurts. Their balm is perfect for keeping my skin smooth and healthy, and I mix their CBD flower with every joint I roll to give my hide that perfect equilibrium I'm always looking for. So to change your life with Roadrunner CBD's products, go to roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref, R-E-F slash C-Y-S. And use the code CYS at checkout for 10% off. Trust me, you're going to want to try this out. Check them out today. If you're liking the show, please consider leaving us a review. If you're listening on Apple, you can leave a review right on your player. For everybody else, check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. It's great to be back with you all. You all were in for a special treat today. You you know Drug Policy Alliance. You were so helpful season one. 
uh, two seasons ago now, which is pretty remarkable, raising over $12,000 for that organization. You know, it's very near and dear to my heart. Well, I have with me today a very special guest, the man who helped found that organization and is now, look, I'll, I'll put it this way. He's forgotten more about drug policy than I will know in my entire lifetime. With me today is the one and only Ethan Nadelman. Ethan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Jay, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. So, as my listeners know, the first half is always about your story because as a guy in recovery myself, I, I, nobody gets into this work just by happenstance. You don't wake up and go, you know, I think drugs. I think that's what I'm going to do today. So let's start off with with what it was about this subject, what it was about drug policy that called to you. And when did you decide to work in this field? You know, Jay, it's funny. I, I find myself answering that question in different ways as time evolves, you know. And so I guess if I if I had to think about uh maybe three key factors or so. One would be growing up, uh, my father was a rabbi, not an Orthodox rabbi. He was conservative, reconstructionist uh, rabbi. And, you know, and, and we, but we had a fairly religious home. And I grew up in a kind of, you know, crazy family, but sort of moral, ethical backing. And, and the notion that, you know, one should, you know, it was a good thing in life to speak to the better values, right? And that I didn't come from a money-making family, uh, you know, nobody in my family. And then my uncle was a professor. My mom's brother. And so this kind of, you know, professor on the one side who was a bit of a role model and my father, rabbi, a bit of a role model on the other. You know, I thought about being a rabbi, but my dad was so good at doing it. He was a wonderful speaker. He spoke four languages. He was just, you know, he was a really he just had a gift for doing that. And so I think there was something that that kind of clicked for me early on that somehow combining my intellectual interests with something I cared about personally, passionately, that that that, that was something that would probably, I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but in retrospect, I realized that was part of it. I think the second thing was that, um, you know, I go off to college. I, I didn't smoke. I didn't, I never smoked weed. I mean, like once or twice when I was a senior in high school, I didn't even get high. But then I go, I freshman year in college. I'm up in McGill in Montreal. I grew up in New York, but I went up to McGill in Montreal for college. And I, you know, and I got high with friends and I, I really liked it. And I was also going out drinking, but it was very clear to me, you know, I mean, that alcohol was a far more problematic drug compared to weed, right? I mean, I know people who smoke too much weed and it was a problem, but alcohol, you know, I mean, you know, ugly stuff could be associated with that. And there were people getting busted at the border and we had to hide. And it just kind of like, what's this about? Like, why is this illegal? Why are I and my, my friends at risk? Why do we have to be scared if somebody's got a joint in their pocket when we go through the border? I mean, th that kind of thing just kind of clicked with me. Um, and I appreciated the high of marijuana, you know? And uh, and then when I got into my early 20s, I tried mushrooms a number of times and I, and I found mushrooms really, you know, not just enjoyable, but valuable in terms of uh, some of the creative thinking and, and other, ex other experiences. And then I think going back to that first thing, you know, in wanting to combine my intellectual pursuits and my, uh, and my, my personal passions, I had focused on U.S. foreign policy, the Middle East, stuff like that. And I actually wrote my first articles, taught my first class on that, all that. But I kind of was burning out of it. This was early 80s. And and I wasn't taking my, I was doing a law degree and a PhD at Harvard. So that was a big deal, but I wasn't taking myself very seriously. And a friend of mine said, Ethan, you've always been attracted to the kind of deviant side of things. And, you know, and you're into the drug thing. Why don't you just do that? And it was really a backwater issue back in the early 80s. I mean, nobody was really, there's almost nobody in the field of political science looking at it. There were a few sociologists, but even that was kind of not a hot thing. And so I said, what the hell? 
I'll, I'll start studying the, the drug issue. And then it became a whole thing about international crime and law enforcement. And then it was just this incredible sort of coincidence that as I'm finally finishing my dissertation in 86, 87, the U.S. drug war goes absolutely crazy. And all of a sudden, the issue that I picked to focus on when I was in my early 20s, that was a backwater issue, is now the number one issue in American you know, public opinion all over the media. So that was a kind of fortuitous in my own personal life, not for the country and the world, but fortuitous for me. And I guess, I mean, I think in a way, and then what happens when I first start teaching at Princeton 87. I write a few articles and I get catapulted into this kind of little 15 minutes of fame thing. And I kind of get hooked. I get hooked on this cause. I get, I, I start meeting the people involved in it who are amazing, wonderful, the academics, the activists, the others, because nobody's getting involved in this cause in the late eighties because it's a cool or popular thing to do. I mean, it was really people who were free thinkers, people who were understanding there was something fundamentally wrong here coming from all across the political spectrum, from very different experiences with drugs. Um, but that kind of captivated me. And I kind of found my calling. Um, and I guess just to finish it off, you know, 89, I hadn't done mushrooms for seven years. I have a, a mushroom experience in 89. And it was really at that moment, I think, that um, it wasn't an epiphany, but where things really crystallized for me that that this drug issue was going to be central to my life and that my mission in life was going to be to teach about drugs and that teaching about drugs and drug policy and all about that would be a vehicle um, for addressing broader issues in politics and in American society. Um, and that whether I remained an academic or became some kind of activist or journalist or writer or politician, that didn't matter so much as that this was going to be the focus. It's a very fascinating story. And, and there's one thing in particular that I, I, I relate to. And I also grew up in a Jewish family, Reformed Judaism. Uh, for me, at least, and, and this is something that I've heard from a, a number of my Jewish uh, friends who, who work in this field, but also listeners, is that this topic, you know, there, when it comes to Judaism, we we like to keep things in the community, right? We we a lot of these subjects are ones that we uh, were sort of taught. Oh, oh, keep that in the family. Don't talk about this. Was this a, a struggle for you early on? Was did you have family forces going? Wait, you want to do what? You know, it's funny. Um, not really. I mean, I was always kind of independent minded about this stuff, and I think for my dad, you know, he was kind kind of intrigued. You know, from my mom, my mom. A biostatistician, and she didn't. She didn't really connect to all the political, cultural sort of stuff. It was just kind of a weird thing that her rebellious eldest son was, you know, doing right. Uh, but the fact that I was doing it at Harvard and then at Princeton was kind of legitimizing, right? I had, you know, I had the benefit of having these elite institutions, you know, associated with what it was I was doing. I think for my dad, um, I mean, my dad really struggled terribly with two addictions. Uh, one was to cigarettes. And the other one was to food. I mean, my dad was, you know, I, I mean, he was an amazing rabbi. I love my dad, but he was the fattest dad in the neighborhood. You know, I mean, he was five, eight and a half, 250 pounds and he smoked. And, and, you know, I was freaked out by smoking from the time I was like 10. And they showed you that, you know, did a fake lung with all the tobacco shit in it and this kind of stuff. So I was afraid for my dad's well-being. And I saw what, what I saw how he couldn't stop smoking. And I saw how with the food thing, I mean, his, you know, it was, it was a, I mean, you know, the food, which his, his, his mind would just zone in like a, like a, like a junkie in a way. I mean, it was just, it was, um, and so, and, and if, sure enough at 58, he had a massive heart attack and, and he was dead, you know, and it was kind of like, 
we almost weren't your surprise, but on some level, you know, you could almost see that coming. So for me, I remember one time I, I, I was sitting out of the backyard with my dad. I was in my mid twenties. He was in his mid fifties. I said, dad, why don't you try the weed? You know, I, was, I think he was smoking a cigarette. I was smoking a joint and I, was, I had, didn't normally do that in front of him, but I was just kind of pushing the envelope with dad. And he said, no, I'll get addicted. I'll get addicted, you know? And so, so, so it was really that side drug, you know, Drugs was not really an issue in my family, apart from my dad's addiction, addiction to cigarettes and to food. That was really, and the, and the rest of my family, you know, um, you know, not not really, not really, you know. Oh, I will say, I've had one family member who just has about the worst relationship with marijuana I've ever seen. So, you know, whenever all my allies, you know, you know, I'll praise the medical benefits of marijuana to the skies and marijuana has been a really net positive in my life. But I have both friends and people, you know, in my family for whom marijuana has just been a nightmare thing, not because it led to other things, just because they become delusional, because they because brings out elements in personality and in habits that are just terrible. So, you know, I'm always quite conscious to say with marijuana, yeah, for most people, it can be a neutral to beneficial thing in your life. That doesn't mean it can't be a terrible thing for some people. Well, and that's such a good point. We can obviously talk more about the policy in the later in the episode. But, you know, as we're recording this just last week, the story made its rounds about the guy who uh, passed away after ODing on caffeine. And it's it's something similar that, you know, obviously most of these substances or a lot of these substances in the in the right dosage to the right people that can be neutral or beneficial. But for for some people, it can be very uh, a giant negative in their life. But I want to uh, you, you mentioned your father's death and this is jumping ahead. I know that that uh, stuck with you very heavily and it, and it was a, a factor when you eventually uh, resigned as the executive director of, of the organization that you helped started. So start. So let's let's go to that now. You know, again, my, my fans are, are, are big fans of the Drug Policy Alliance. Take, take us to the founding of that and how you went from Harvard, our, our, our professor at Princeton to starting uh the organization that most people associate with drug policy. Yeah, sure, Jay. I mean, I'll try to make it as quick as possible, this sort of thumbnail sketch version. But basically, in graduate school, one of my advisors at the law, Harvard Law School, Phil Hyman, had been a top guy in the criminal division in the Justice Department. And he encouraged me to focus on the internationalization of crime and law enforcement. So I actually talked my way into the State Department, got a security clearance, uh, did a consultancy with the State Department's Narcotics Bureau on dealing with drug-related money laundering. I traveled all around Latin America, Europe, 19 countries interviewing DEA and, and U.S. And, and foreign law enforcement agents, hundreds of foreign law, law enforcement agents. And I wrote a book called, first dissertation of the book called Cops Across Borders, about how police and prosecutors and diplomats deal with crime when it crosses borders. And even though, even early on, I thought the whole drug world was ridiculous and counterproductive, I leaned over backwards to give these guys the benefit of the doubt. They had opened their doors to me. I didn't want to sort of betray them by just kind of slamming them. I depicted them as guys you know, that, that in the bigger picture, what they were doing was kind of no different than the prohibition agents of the 20s or 30s. But I, I barely made that point. It was really about how do they deal with the challenges in front of them and such, right? And so, so but I also knew by hanging out in the corridors of government power at that time, you know, that people knew nothing about drugs. I mean, I mean, the people enforcing laws had no idea about how we landed up with these drug laws in the first place. They had no idea that maybe these drugs had been legal back in the 19th century. They didn't know what mushrooms were. They didn't know the relative risks of cocaine versus I mean, they were absolutely 
ignorant about this stuff. And it really emphasized to me that people just, you know, they didn't know their ass from their elbow about what they were talking about. And that if you pass laws, the next generation, you know, forgets whatever was behind the laws. If there was any kind of real public health thing, they lose sight of the public health rationale for a kind of, you know, a drug law. And they just get obsessed with the kind of enforcement element. Right. So so I became very conscious of that. I think what happened late 80s, drug war goes crazy. You know, I've described it oftentimes as like McCarthyism on steroids. And I published this article in Foreign Policy Magazine, a kind of elite publication, basically saying the war on drugs is doing more harm than good. I'm not saying we should legalize everything, but we have to be aware of the extent to which prohibitionist policies are responsible for most of what we identify as part and parcel of the drug problem. And a month later, the new mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, who had been the chief prosecutor there, stands up at a a mayor's conference and says the same thing. And then The Economist magazine says the same thing. And all of a sudden, he and I and a few other people, conservatives like William Buckley, Milton Friedman, the head of the ACLU, Ira Glasser, a couple of ex-police chiefs, were like, I mean, we're sort of being played as like the entertainment element. Like, and now we take a break from our drug war coverage to show you a few oddballs, the Princeton professor, the Baltimore mayor, the right wing ideologues, you know, the ACLU who think that the war on drugs, we should legalize, you know, and even though I wasn't arguing for out full legalization, everything involving reform got characterized as, you know, outright legalization. But nonetheless, you know, I quickly became, I was just in my young 30s, you know, you know, the most most desired, best paid public speaker in the world talking about what was wrong with the drug war and speaking from universities to all types of professional associations. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you name it. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And then um, I started teaching. Princeton asked me to teach classes on drug policy. I did that. I met I began to meet other people interested in the advocacy movement. An organization called the Drug Policy Foundation was created by two guys in D.C., which eventually became part of my drug policy alliance. Um, And so this movement began. And I started a working group at Princeton of of distinguished academics trying to figure out what would be the optimal drug policy. You know, nobody was a libertarian. Nobody wanted full legalization, but we were all against the drug war. So I was developing the intellectual side. I was out there speaking. I was getting involved with their activists. And then, you know, and I started thinking about creating my own sort of interdisciplinary center on drugs and drug policy at Princeton or probably at another university. Um, And then out of the blue, I get an invitation to lunch from a guy named George Soros, uh, who was not well known then, but, you know, he was a successful financial guy. He had been supporting human rights causes in South Africa and the the Soviet Union, and he had become interested in this issue because he was interested in advancing open society ideals. And so we had lunch. We hit it off. Um, One thing led to another. A year later, in 93, I shook hands. In 94, I left Princeton. I started up my institute, initially called the Lindesmith Center, named after a professor, Alfred Lindesmith, who had been the first major American academic to challenge conventional thinking about drugs and addiction and drug policy. And I started building that up and getting involved in, you know, then opportunity emerged to do some ballot initiatives, one on legalizing medical marijuana, the other one on treatment instead of incarceration. I got involved. So all of a sudden, my life started to get more political in that way. Um, you know, what I thought would be an interdisciplinary center on the study of drugs and drug policy becomes more and more of an advocacy institute. Uh, I, you know, I found a way to sort of open up Soros's network, the international network, to expand harm reduction, basically methadone maintenance, needle exchange, you know, honest drug education type stuff in the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. It all just kept building and building. And then, you know, six years after I started the Lindesmith Center, you know, you know, it had always been understood I would spin the thing out. So at that point, we spin it out of Soros's foundation. The old drug policy foundation had fallen on hard times, so it merged with my institute. 
and we created Drug Policy Alliance. And that became an independent organization that I then spent, you know, the next 17 years kind of building up to be the leading drug reform organization in the world. By the, by the time I left, we had, I think, offices in around seven cities in the U.S. We had, you know, a $15 million budget. I had uh, 75, 80 people working for me at DPA. We had some part of our work was doing international work. Um, and Jan, just basically so you listeners understand, the work really fell into three major categories. The first, one third, was about really ending marijuana prohibition, right? Legalizing marijuana for medical purposes, decriminalizing marijuana possession, reducing marijuana arrests, and especially the racist elements of that. And then finally, coming up with a responsible regulatory approach to marijuana for adults. That was first. The second third was about really trying to roll back the role of the drug war and mass incarceration because the drug war had really driven mass incarceration in this country in the 80s and 90s and into the early aughts. And even though its role was beginning to diminish as you know, as we get closer to now, nonetheless, I mean, there were some state, my own state, New York, or the previous state, New Jersey, you know, 40, 45, 50% of all new admissions to prison were for a drug law violation. In the federal prison, it was even higher than that. I mean, nationally and among women, you know, sometimes a majority of all women incarcerated in some places go in there for drug violations. So it was all about rolling back mandatory minimum drug sentences, finding alternatives to incarceration, um, you know, you name it, all those sorts of efforts. And the last third, was about making a serious commitment to treating drug use and misuse as a health issue, not a criminal issue. And initially, that meant things like um, reducing the stigma for people on methadone maintenance. It meant um, it meant uh, making clean needles available through pharmacies and needle exchange programs. Then we began to take on very early on the issue of overdose 20 years ago, when it was still a relatively small issue, but still growing from 5,000 to 10,000 a year, fraction of what it is today, but definitely growing, taking on that, uh, advancing an a honest drug education program based on a sex education model, right? You know, which is telling kids, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. But if you do, there's some things we want you to know so that you come home safely at the end of the night, right? And so those three major strands really became the focus of our work, mostly in the U.S., 5 or 10% outside the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was uh, the marijuana one got the lion's share of the media attention because it was dramatic, because it was the ballot initiatives. But in terms of the resources, the staff time, my time, I'd say we spent a majority of our work dealing with the other drugs, not with marijuana. From from studying the history of Drug Policy Alliance, the the different initiatives that you and the organization have played a part in is is just astronomical. So thank you for for everything that you've done and for the organization's successes there. As I understand it, though, you know we can look back and say, all right, the the, the cannabis issue has come a long way since you got into this, you know, thirty whatever years ago. That's easy to see. However, for some of the rest of us who haven't been in this fight as long, you know, for me, it's been about a decade. It's harder to see the successes because we're so focused on where we're falling short. In, in your eyes, from, from the, your 30 years of experience here, what sort of successes do you see that we may be overlooking that or, or I guess a, a different way to put that would be it may be hard for us to see that that success because we're so focused on what still needs to be done. 
Well, I'd say the probably it's not as dramatic because you know I sometimes say that when trying to turn around the, the the whole mass incarceration system is like trying to turn around an ocean liner, which is even when you point in a new direction, it still takes a while before you're actually point going in a new direction. But I was just looking at some of the stats that came out. The Pew Foundation, PEW, has a very good report that came out some weeks ago, and it's really quite revealing. I mean, one of the things it shows is that on the one hand, drug arrests keep plugging away, but if you look at the number of people incarcerated now in state prisons on drug charges, it's really dropped very substantially, right? So, so you know, mass incarceration, I mean, we, you know, we did sort of go from half a million people locked up um, for everything in 1980, up to 2.3 million as of about 10 years ago. And now that kind of stabilizes, begun to head down. Right. And you see in some states, it's like in my state, New York or California, a range of other states, it's really come down substantially. And even some of those policies have now been embraced. And there have even been new innovations in some of the redder states, you know, where they were going like, we can't keep locking up people at this rate. It's just bankrupting us. And it's, you know, the as immoral. I mean, they're beginning to get the morality piece of this thing as well. It's not just about money. So when I look at incarceration, and I really think that we've had substantial success. I mean, we, you know, mandatory minimums have been pushed down at the federal federal level and in many states. Alternatives to incarceration have become a much bigger thing. Um, we we really see a substantial change going on there, and I I think that that I I feel very good about. I mean, it's it's people don't focus on it as much, but it has been a substantial transformation. Um, not throughout the entire country, but definitely in many parts, and in a big way. In places like New York, New Jersey, California, you know, that were mad, real serious mass incarcerators, even though they were seen as more liberal blue states. Um, but sometimes we're having even more people incarcerated than even some southern states. So I think that was one major success, which is ongoing. Very interesting, by the way. I just looked at the stats too, Jay. It looks like the number of marijuana arrests has dropped maybe from three quarter of a million down to under half a million. I mean, the cops, it's amazing they keep doing it. It's really all about controlling young men, right? I mean, that's the bullshit behind this so, and, and racking up the statistics and all that. Um, but on the other hand, that's come down, but it's been replaced by white people getting, but mostly white people getting busted for methamphetamine. And so you've seen that sort of triple. So as marijuana arrests came down by a quarter million or so in the last 10 years, you see, which is mostly disproportionately black people, you see arrests of of mostly white people going up for methamphetamine by almost the same amount. So there's still a racial bias because the racial bias between black and white arrests was overwhelming. So even with this transition, you still see racial disproportionality. You still see race and racism operating there, but it's not as wildly disproportionate as it was in the past. And meanwhile, this methamphetamine thing, which has, I think, been pretty consistently like 75, 80% white people, and like 15% Hispanic or so, you know, has, has been a factor. I think on the last part of the thing about the whole public health harm reduction approach, I mean, if you think about it, when I got going, we had a handful of needle exchange programs around the country. And, and many of the biggest states would not even allow people to get a sterile syringe in a pharmacy. And now it's still grossly inadequate. But these programs now exist in hundreds of cities around America. You see them, you know, and even places that are somewhat concerned, like Ohio, they're there. You saw Mike Pence when he was governor of Indiana, and they had an outbreak of HIV in some of their little towns. And, you know, he was ideologically opposed. But then, you know, he said he talked to the police chief and had a conversation with God. And so he said, okay to the thing. Right. So, I mean, that kind of transformation you see. So I think there. You're seeing uh, the response to the overdose epidemic, even though it's been grossly inadequate, you see basically naloxone. I remember 
15 years ago, prosecutors, what we did in naloxone. I mean, you know, you want people to suffer the consequences of their addiction. You know, if they're going to use these illegal drugs, let them die. I mean, it was the subtext. And now you have like police chiefs saying, give us naloxone, please give it to us, give it to us, give it to us. You know, we don't, we'd rather, we'd rather save a life than put handcuffs on, on, on a corpse. Right. So you've seen a real evolution on the whole naloxone, the overdose prevention stuff. You saw just recently the Biden administration use the phrase harm reduction in Biden's was it the state of the state of the union speech. That was a even Obama didn't do that. So that even and even though he was more sympathetic than Biden was, the politics have shifted. If you look on when Trump was president. There was almost no bipartisanship to speak of, but there were two laws that went through Congress in, I think, 2018 with bipartisan support that Donald Trump signed into law. And one of them was to roll back mandatory minimums for drug offenses. And the other one was to deal with the opioid epidemic through, you know, I mean, they could have been more generous, but it was basically a positive approach. And so if you think about drug policy reform, we were kind of the third rail of American politics, the one that nobody wanted to touch, Democrats or Republicans for a long time. And you get to 2018, now two major domains of drug policy reform are actually one of the few areas of bipartisanship in the US Congress. So you know, we have a long way to go. And I've talked about how this has got to be a multi-generational struggle, and we're probably in the second generation now of drug policy reform. But I say all of those things represented very significant um, reforms. And, you know, I mean, I could point even like national Center of drug abuse. I mean, I had Nora Volkow on my podcast, Psychoactive, and I gave her a lot of shit about, you know, why isn't she doing the stuff that would really make a difference? She's spending billions of dollars trying to establish that addiction is a brain disease, but nothing positive has come out of that, that real, or almost nothing that's really helping people, right? But I see in the last six months or whatever, since Biden's been president, she's been changing her tune, right? You see at the United Nations, you know, Back in 98, I organized a global letter to the secretary general saying the war on drugs do more harm than good. But at that point, the rhetoric was, you know, a drug free world. We can do it. I mean, idiotic, delusional, like what were they smoking type of idiotic rhetoric. And you get to the more recent one, the U.N. General Assembly special session on drugs five years ago. And, you know, it's still not good. But it's definitely showing an evolution and a greater sophistication of thinking and abandonment of that kind of highly ideological, ridiculous rhetoric towards focusing on this is a real problem. So, you know, I mean, in the broader world of things, you know, I mean, the marijuana things moved almost even faster than I expected. Um, and I feel very proud of that. But I also have some regrets that in my legacy, oh, Ethan Edelman legalizing marijuana. I mean, it's something to be very, I'm very proud of it. But, you know, it, it really obscures the fact that it was like a third of my work and the other the other successes were less grand, but they actually resulted in, I mean, the other work I was engaged in on, on you know, sentencing reform and on harm reduction and stuff like that, that's actually saved more lives and reduced incarceration more than the work did on marijuana, right? The marijuana reduced arrests and helped, you know, remove all these other little insidious elements of marijuana prohibition in our society. Um, but uh, the other stuff was bigger in terms of affecting people's lives in a more profound way. I want to talk more about that work, but before we do, let's take a quick break. And before we get into the break, if you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can find you, where they can find the podcast, anything you want my listeners to know. Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, I say, you know, I started this podcast called Psychoactive 
last summer. Uh, we just uh, completed the recording for the first season. It's been renewed for a second season, and it's available on all the major channels. You know, I mean, Apple, Spotify, you know, iHeart, uh, you name it. It's a joint production with iHeart, which is one of the biggest platforms in the world, and with Darren Aronofsky, who's a movie director, and his Protozoa Pictures um, Enterprise. You know, he wanted, the way this happened was he, he, I knew him a little bit, and he called me up, said, you want to do a podcast about psychedelics? And I said, no, I want to do a podcast about all drugs. So he said, let's do it. So I'm his first effort to produce a, a podcast rather than a movie. And so I'm, I'm having a wonderful time with it and having, you know, people from all around the world and a whole range of subjects and uh, and slowly building out a, a, an audience for this around the world. So that's it. And the other thing I suggest is you want to see this, the, a thumbnail sketch of this thing, just watch my TED talk, because that's probably a good summary of, uh, you know, my views on this whole thing. Thank you for supporting the show. Here at Choose Your Struggle, we rely on all of y'all to help us end stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy. And there's so many ways to engage with our work, from our podcast to our storytelling events to bringing me in to speak to your company, your school, or your organization. You can also support us on Patreon for as little as $3.40 a month. And we're so appreciative. This work is grueling at times, and your support goes a long way to helping us keep going. So find us at chooseyourstruggle.com and find me at jshiffman.com. And thank you, thank you for being a part of the Choose Your Struggle family. Choose Your Struggle. Find us on social media. Check the link in your show notes or search for Jay Schiffman and Choose Your Struggle on any social media platform. You resigned from your leadership of the Drug Policy Alliance in 2017, and very famously, uh, it, it, it you you were um, uh, succeeded by now two women of color, which is, it's almost sad that we have to say this, right? It's almost sad that we have to, to point out that this is a, a success. Was that, I, I guess, that was intentional, or was that something that you just strongly believed was important? Where, where, talk about that for a second. Sure, Jay. Well, first of all, you know when I, you know I had always assumed that I would step down sometime between age sixty and eighty, and then I ended up turning stepping down at age sixty. And and for me, I mean, I had actually planned it out um, from a couple of years earlier because I was sort of had gone nonstop round the clock, you know, forever and ever. And like, you know, like most actors, like maybe one week during the summer, I'd go like, am I burning out? Do I need a, you know, but what happened in 2015 after I'd been doing this, I mean, since I started Linda Smith center, it was like 21 years. Um, uh, you know, I noticed those feelings of like exhaustion, like, like, like the, like the, the, the bottomless, you know, fountain of passion for this stuff was was just not quite the same. And so then what happened was I just started having a set of conversations with my board chair, Ira Glasser, who used to run the ACLU, and with a couple of close friends and a consultant. And I realized that on the personal level, um, on the organizational level, on the political level, everything was kind of pointing to, Ethan, now is the time to go. You know, on a personal level, you know, I mean, you mentioned the point about my dad. My dad had died at age 58. I was now at that point 58, 59. And I, I had no role model in my family for what to do after that. So there was, that was a little bit of factor. But it was also wanting to have the time to stop and do something different at a young enough age to be able to do that sort of stuff. Um, and, and, and it was um, on the organizational level, you know, I felt the DPA you know, we were in a strong situation. I, I put money into our reserves, my management team, nine of the 10 people on my management team had been with me for 10 years. I had a really solid board. So I knew that 
to the extent when a, when a founding director steps away, typically the organization goes through some tricky times, unless there's a popular kind of deputy who replaces, replaces him, right? So I, but I felt like I prepared things really well. And then politically speaking, um, you know, on the marijuana thing, when we won that California issue in 2016, it just felt like game over, you know? And at that point, there were two elements. One was, you know, the marijuana thing was going to become less about whether we legalize and more about how we legalize and the issues about racial equity, social justice, which were dear to my heart. But for me, the greater passion was ending marijuana prohibition. It was helping play a role in moving the country from barely 30 percent of the country wanting to legalize marijuana 20 years before and marijuana being legal for nothing to getting the point where by 2016 it was, you know, 55 percent, close to 60 percent saying legalize and and medical marijuana being legal in, you know, almost two thirds of the state. And now we've legalized eight states, including California. So it was like, let a next generation take this over on the sentencing reform thing, drug policy reform, which had really been the cutting edge of criminal justice reform for decades, was now, even as it was growing, it was becoming ever an ever diminishing part of a much broader criminal justice reform agenda, and I, which meant a much more crowded field, more jostling with allies, and I, I was less engaged and interested in that. And the harm reduction thing was going to be a long-term struggle. But then to speak directly to your question, you know, it was also an era where most of the drug policy reform organizations, and this is probably true of a lot of social justice organizations, but in our case on, on marijuana, on, um, on, uh, on psychedelics, on harm reduction, drug policy reform, basically white male founders, right? And you could look at the broader sociological reasons why it's disproportionately white men who found these social justice organizations, some of which involve issues that disproportionately affect non-white people. Right. But, you know, whether it's because we have the privilege, we have the guts, we have the whatever. But it was clearly I looked around me and there was, you know, I could see other founders were beginning to step aside. Right. And and especially not like on the psychedelics issue, but other issues, you seeing, you know, young people of color or not so young people of color beginning to step in. It was a transitional point. Right. And by the way, Jay, there was another point here. I wanted to be the first person who thought it was time for me to step down. Right. And, and, you know, I, I don't know anybody who thought it's, oh, Ethan's been there too long. It's time for him to step aside. I, I hadn't even heard rumors about that, nor anybody else I know. And I wanted to be the first person to say to sort of, you know, jump the clock, beat the beat people to the punch by saying I'm stepping down, you know. And I had a couple of role models of other people who had stepped down at sort of the top of their game. It's like you think about a sports athlete who's at the top of their game. And also they realize that their enthusiasm or maybe they're still, you know, hitting, you know, doing top-notch work, but they can feel they're beginning to lose a half step. I wanted to step down at that time. And the transition to another type, another leadership was appropriate. Now, when it came to my successors, I really stepped aside from that. That was really left up to my board chair, Ira Glasser, and a, a committee of the, uh, of the board to do that. And I think there was a general awareness that especially with drug policy reform, where this so disproportionately affects people of color, you know, that the time was coming. So it wasn't an absolute mandate that it had to be a person of color, right? But I think the sense was that certainly all things being equal and beyond that. And then, you know, we got some qualified, you know, you know people. And so my immediate successor, Mia Ma Maria McFarlane, um, who had come from Human Rights Watch, um, you know, came, her father was Peruvian. So, but, you know, that was inevitably going to be kind of tough for her coming from the outside 
and stepping in. But then her successor, after a couple of years, who's the current executive director, Cassandra Federique, Cassandra had come out almost out of college. So she'd been at DPA for 10, 12 years, a really brilliant, powerful speaker, you know, speaking to the racial justice issues. She and I had tangled over the racial justice issues internally, but kind of worked out those issues and the interpersonal stuff inside. So I was really looking at her as really, a, you know, a quite likely successor as soon as she got sort of mature enough and uh, experienced enough. And that moment arose a couple of years ago. And I think she's doing a fantastic job of really kind of DPA sort of coming back in a big way, you know, the Oregon initiative, the, the all drug decrim thing they did, a whole range of other issues they're working on, uh, you know, leading the marijuana legalization effort in New York and making it a new model for responsible social equity model, uh, leading it in some other states as well. So I think it was, um, you know, although I, I, as I say, I, I didn't pick my successor. Um, I was conscious of, of really trying to focus on Cassandra's potential because there were a few other people who had previously worked at DPA or some others outside who I thought could also be worthy candidates. Um, but I think Cassandra is really kind of an optimal choice. Another question of your legacy is, is I love that the line you said, it's not whether we're going to legalize, it's, it's how you know, we, we are moving towards a point where, where I think in my lifetime, certainly cannabis will be legal. What is it going to take to a push that over the finish line, but b help follow that up with other substances? It, it, is it as many activists, including myself, believe going to take you know the activist community sort of dragging our politicians by the hand over the finish line, or do you think that we are? Uh, ever going to see a situation again where our political leaders can actually be just that in leaders on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I rarely look to politicians for leadership. I mean, sometimes you have no choice and some of them actually step up. Um, but if you think about it, most of our major successes happen, at least initially, through the ballot initiative process, you know, and that was true on marijuana reform. It was true on treatment instead of incarceration. It was true on uh, reforming the asset forfeiture laws. Uh, you know, this is an issue that typically politicians are afraid of their shadow. So even when a majority agree with you, they're, they're really scared about the attack ads um, coming at them saying they're soft on drugs or soft on crime or about powerful law enforcement unions, you know, the prison guards union or other folks, you know, kind of coming out against them. So we really, you know, we use the, with medical marijuana, the first six or seven states were through the ballot issue process. With marijuana legalization, you know, the first, I think, eight or nine or 10 were through the ballot initiative process. Um, on the major breakthroughs on treatment instead of incarceration through the initiative process, first in Arizona, then California. So and then the politicians begin to see that it's getting a little safer and you get typically Democrats once in a while, a Republican stepping up to do it. I think when we look at it, look, with remember, with the repeal of alcohol prohibition, right? I mean, that involved a massive movement that repealed, you know, only time in American history that one amendment was repealed with another amendment, the 18th by the 21st. But even so. Many localities remained dry for many decades. And I think Mississippi maybe didn't legalize alcohol for like 20, 25 years after prohibitions repeal. So understand that even when the feds kind of get out of the way, the states go at their own pace. And I think we'll see the same thing here. I mean, now we have one third of the states, including some of the biggest ones that have legalized. The momentum is, is really strong. People are learning from, you know, what worked and what didn't work in other states. It's going to keep happening. Um, you know, well, you get a surprise state like Virginia popping up. I didn't see that one coming. Uh, or was it South Dakota voting through an initiative, although it's being undercut by their governor? 
Um, so, you know, you're seeing this happen even in red states, even in Trumpier states and things like that. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time, but some states will, you know, be holdouts. You know, it may take a long time. Mississippi just legalized medical marijuana, but it may take a while for them to legalize it more broadly. And there are other other southern states or, or you know, Idaho's of the world, you know, that may take a while. But we're heading there. And the same thing's true, by the way, in Latin America and Europe, and it'll eventually reach Africa and places like that. So I think marijuana, it's just a matter of time. Um, you know, people sometimes think that the marijuana industry played a big role in, in this happening. But quite frankly, all the time I was doing this, right until I stepped down in early 2017, marijuana industry was contributing only a tiny fraction of the money. I mean, one of the other organizations involved was taking more money from them. But, you know, my view is we don't want to raise money from industry till after we've drafted our initiatives and we've done a good initiative based on good public policy, and then we'll try to get money from them. We're not going to draft the initiative to suit their needs in any particular, you know, profit-driven way. So I think the marijuana thing is clear. Look, psychedelics is just incredibly um, exciting. I mean, what's going on now, and there's two major strands. One is, you know, the work that my friend Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, initiated 35 years ago really, which is getting the FDA to approve uh, MDMA and other organizations now working on psilocybin and possibly LSD, um, basically for psychotherapeutic purposes to deal with not just PTSD, but a whole raft of other sorts of conditions. But where the evidence is really compelling and where you have very skeptical hard scientists being blown away by the results of, the, of, the, of MDMA and psilocybin and other psychedelics relative to the standard you know, SSRIs and other drugs used for mental health, mental illness conditions. The second strand is the decriminalization of, uh, you know, not uh, either entirely separate or overlapping a bit with the kind of therapeutic environment, a therapeutic piece. And when you look at the Oregon initiative, you know, back in 2020, the Oregon electorate passed two drug reform initiatives. One was the one initiated by DPA, basically the Portugal model in the U.S. So ending, basically saying nobody's going to go to jail for simple drug possession, and we want to encourage people to get help, whether it's sobriety help or harm reduction help or whatever it's going to be. Right. But we're not putting people in jail anymore for simple drug possession. Um, and then the second initiative was a psychedelics reform initiative um, that included basically had this element of saying that therapists should be allowed to use these drugs for therapeutic purposes and not necessarily in a total medical environment, you know, opening it up a bit. So now we're going to see Colorado is going to have an initiative on the ballot um, coming up, I think, this uh, this year. And uh, I'm not sure if some other states will as well, but certainly by 2024, you're going to see a number of states doing both all drug decrim initiatives, the Portugal model, the now Oregon model, and new and improved as we learn from the experience of Oregon. And then there's going to be psychedelics initiatives that either focus on the decrim side or on the medical therapeutic side, or that integrate those things. So I think that's going to be you know, really the next front on these things. Um, you know, I, I don't hear a lot of people arguing for psychedelics to be sold um, over the counter the way marijuana is. I think there's still a realization that we need to, you know, let's be cautious about this stuff. And, you know, and, and the more, you know, cautionary, reasonable people are saying, look, we're making nice momentum here. The media is mostly on our side. The public's getting educated on this sort of stuff. You know, be careful of letting this thing open up so fast 
that we get this sort of, you know, pushback like happened with Timothy Leary back in the 60s of, you know, more and more accidents happening, people dying as a result of doing stupid shit when they're high and, and things like that. So so I think that's got a, there will be I mean, the pendulum will swing back at some point as it does. It's going to swing back on marijuana. And I see the old anti-marijuana folks trying to come up with new angles to try to push the thing back. I think the marijuana momentum is so strong, it's not going to make much of an effect. Psychedelics, there'll be, you know, it'll be some pushback. But I, I mean, Jay, I think the big issue that's out there right now that's not really part of the American debate is a debate that's going on in British Columbia in Canada, where, you know, Vancouver, relatively progressive city, wealthy city, but they've had it. They had over 2000 people die of an overdose fatality uh, last year. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a desperate kind of situation. It's mostly fentanyl or fentanyl in combination with stimulants like Coke and meth. Right. And, and what they're starting to talk about there, and if it not just us, it's been a few years, is something called safe supply, which is how do you set up systems so that people who are committed to using drugs like fentanyl, heroin, meth, coke, whatever, you know, the people are going to use those drugs, whether they're legal or illegal, if they're already committed to using them and they're going to do it criminally if they can't do it legally, how do you set up a system that allows those people to get the drugs they want? Plus, of course, the opportunity for treatment and for help and for other services. I mean, those things always go hand in hand in any kind of compassionate, sensible, pragmatic society. How do you allow people to get access to those substances in such a way that it does not present a threat to the broader population? That's the $64,000 question around what people would call drug legal drug legalization, drug regulation, you know, harm reduction, slash, slash, you know. It's how do you do that? And so in Vancouver, especially in other parts, I think, of British Columbia, and there's discussion about this in Canada, how do you do that? I mean, we know that what's killing people now, you know, most people who used heroin did not die just from using heroin by itself. Typically with heroin, unless you got some extraordinarily powerful sample, by and large, you had to be combining heroin with booze or with benzos in order to stop your breathing and die. With fentanyl, you don't need to combine it with anything right? It's strong enough, 50 times the potency of heroin per gram or microgram, you know, that people are just, you know, dropping dead like flies. Now, I mean, it, it, it's, that's the thing where you need, you, you want to make available, you know, not just methanol maintenance, not just buprenorphine, not just pharmaceutical heroin maintenance of the sort you see in Europe and Canada. Now you want to make available, not just, you know, open access and abundant, you know, good treatment programs. You want to programs for people who want to embrace sobriety in the here and now. And in the long term. you want people, you know, you want the whole spectrum because we know that when it comes to putting a drug problem behind you, it's a matter of different strokes for different folks. Right. And we know that with opioids, we know that methanobuprenorphine, you know, has the best outcomes for the biggest numbers, but it doesn't work for everybody. You know, people have their own journeys and, 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 you know, so you want to accommodate that sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, it, it's a matter of just getting as innovative and as aggressive about that as possible, while at the same time trying to under, address issues around housing and issues around mental illness. I mean, you know, Nobody's got a good answer how you deal with the intersection of mental illness and substance misuse, right? Nobody's got a good answer. Those are incredibly challenging situations. But I look at places, I mean, for me, a place like the Netherlands is inspiring because not only did they lead the world in a kind of quasi-legalization of marijuana 40 years ago, not only were they among the pioneers of harm reduction, but when you look at the results, there's like 
the average age of their heroin users is like 45, 50 years old now. There's like no new generation getting into, you know, illicit opioids, right? The death rate from overdose is incredibly low. And this is true in some other European countries as well. Now, if fentanyl eventually hits Europe, will we see that change? I mean, it has hit some corners of Europe, but you know, I don't know when it comes to drug policy. And I think, quite frankly, if you look at the approach of places in Northern Europe, not so much the repressive Swedes, but more with the Netherlands, parts of Germany, Denmark, maybe Norway is going to some extent. I think those are actually models for how to have a decent, compassionate society. They're not perfect. They got lots of problems, but they are dealing with multi-ethnic population, you know, almost to the same extent we are dealing with in the U.S., Right. We don't have the kind of social safety net that, you know, they have in those countries. But I think those elements of both, you know, innovative drug policy together with a more forward, pragmatic social welfare uh, policy are really going to be the keys to success in the places that are really struggling here with, um, you know, with, 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 with drugs, homelessness, mental illness playing out on the streets and in our communities. Well, I could listen to to you talking about this all day, but I guess that's what we got the podcast for, right? So before we get to the final questions, we always finish with, please, one more time, shout out where people can find you, find the podcast and all the good stuff. Sure. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, just look it up. Psychoactive. It's the podcast. Uh, it's on all the major networks and tune in, sign up, subscribe. It's free. Is I, I regret that it's got ads, but it is one of these podcasts that's supported by, you know, by, by, by companies advertising uh, on it. So that's a little weird for me. But, you know, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that the sponsors are helping make this available without people having to pay a subscription fee. You know, Jay, the one last issue I wanted to make sure to talk about in your show is one of the issues that has... Re- I, there, well, actually, there are three issues that have really engaged me since I stopped running Drug Policy Alliance almost five years ago. One is this kind of psychedelics renaissance, which I just find absolutely fine, f- fascinating. And psychedelics have played an important and constructive role in my own life. Uh, you know, I've had a couple of bad trips, even those you learn from. Um, but the second issue is the way in which when it comes to what happened with opioids, where the, you know, 20 years ago, you had all these ignorant doctors, you know, uh, you know, over prescribing opioids, uh, oxys and other things for chronic pain in off ways that was inappropriate. You had the pharmaceutical companies and distributors pushing this stuff. You had patients wanting to gobble this stuff down and sort of get an instant relief on their pain. But now what's happened is the pendulum swung too far the other way. And so you now have people, you know, who have been successfully maintained, you know, dealing with the chronic pain on opioids, you know, for years, if not decades. And all of a sudden their doctors are saying, I'm going to cut your dose or take you off it. You have people for whom the alternative methods of dealing with chronic pain aren't working where opioids would make a difference. You now have people committing suicide, right? Because there was just a very good piece by Maya Solovitz in the New York Times a couple of days ago. And I've joined the advisory board of an organization, NPAC, NPAC, National Pain, I think it's Advocate Center. Uh, headed started by Kate Nicholson. I mean, that issue of going back to the battle days 30 years ago when we were not treating pain properly, because, you know, if you're not treating pain properly, people die prematurely, people get highly depressed, people can't function. And even though opioids is not the best way to treat chronic pain for most people, there's still a substantial minority for whom it is the right thing to do. So that's an issue I've become quite impassioned about. And the evidence very strongly backs me up on that. And the other issue is the issue, the fight over e-cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction, where, you know, I mean, you know, forever and ever, there wasn't much. If you smoke cigarettes, what could you do? There was a nicotine patch or nicotine gum. And that worked for that improved outcome for some people. But along come e-cigarettes. 
And more and more evidence shows, and this is, you know, even National Academy of Science, you know, even Center Disease Control acknowledges this in not in a bold way, but these are dual. I mean, to take the leading example of an e-cigarette may be the most effective smoking cessation device ever created or some of the other competitors, right? And now you have also these kind of like things like snus, but in Sweden, like a, a pouch you put in your behind your gums, right? You know, with nicotine in it. And the evidence overwhelmingly shows that these things appear to be anywhere from 90 to 95% less dangerous than cigarettes. Because most of the danger, you know, nicotine's what hooks you, but nicotine doesn't kill you. In fact, it may even turn out to have some medical benefits, right? Vis-a-vis -vis Parkinson's, a range of other things, right? But by and large, it's the smoking that kills you. It's the burnt particle matter. And what happened was, unfortunately, with kids getting into juuling and the e-cigarettes, you had this typical freakout: save the kids, fuck the adults, right? So even though a kid getting into juuling may represent very low risk to their long-term health, but while meanwhile somebody who's been smoking, you know, into into their late thirties, forties, it helps hugely if they can quit smoking. Um, so this whole debate over tobacco harm reduction, and it's really a weird one because people go. But that's big tobacco. But the truth is, is that big tobacco is making a lot more money from cigarettes while they're losing money still on all these alternatives like e-cigarettes. And so when I look at the leading anti-smoking organizations, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, or I look at Mike Bloomberg, who's the principal funder, he's funding good harm reduction stuff with respect to illicit drugs. And meanwhile, they are irrationally opposed to harm reduction when it comes to tobacco and nicotine. And I think the cigarette companies are going, God, Mike Bloomberg's our greatest ally. He's making sure that people keep smoking, which is where we make our big bucks by standing in the way of these alternatives. So I think people need to be aware of the fact that the science overwhelmingly shows that if you that, that if you're trying to quit smoking, you should just start trying. If one doesn't work, if Jewel doesn't work, try Enjoy. If Enjoy doesn't work, try something else and try something else. If that doesn't work, try Snus, try a Try whatever works. Just keep trying. And if you can't, it's best to just quit cigarettes entirely. But if you can't do it, then reduce your cigarettes and get the other thing and try to get to the point where you're no longer smoking the damn cancer sticks, right? I mean, that's what harm reduction is about. Right. And basically, in the same way that kind of an abstinence only ideology got in the way of effective drug treatment, effective harm reduction for so many years as part of the bigger war on drugs, you see this abstinence only approach. And, you know, you know, keeping one kid from vaping is worth a 10 adults dying, which very much mimics the kind of whole big drug war being justified as one great big trial protection act. I mean, you know, harm reduction makes sense there and can save more lives in the tobacco field than it's ever saved or maybe ever will save in the illicit drug area. Amazing points. And, and it, that is, I think, one that we're starting to hear a little bit more about. And I really appreciate you bringing up on this. Uh, again, to my earlier point, you and I could do this for hours and I would happily <laughs> just let you go. Uh, but I am conscious of our, of our time. So we do finish with the same two questions every time. Uh, the first of which is because this show talks about the subjects of mental health a lot. What are what is your number one self care habit? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I I would generally say, you know, I mean, it's been easier to stay in shape and get exercise and all that sort of stuff since I stepped down. I mean, you know, once I stopped running, also I lost ten pounds. You know, and I'm just, in, you know, I don't know, it was a cortisol, the stress hormone, whatever. But actually, my 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 uh, unusual way of healthy aging is once a week, right? I take 10 milligrams of edible marijuana. I grab my headphones 
and I go have a multi-hour deep massage. And that experience is the closest thing I have to meditation in my life. I just float. I listen to music, all different types of music, you know, whatever the theme might be for that, you know, and I just float and I have a deep massage and it just, I come out of there just feeling great. And it just keeps my, I I don't know. I think it's my, I think it's it's my secret sauce to healthy aging. I think you've got a a business venture in there in the future. (laughs) That's a great idea. I would sign up right, right now today. All right. The last one we always finish it with is we've now spent the last over 55 minutes hearing why you're amazing. We got to listen to the podcast. We got to follow your work. But here is your chance to shout out a couple people who you follow, whose work you never miss. Uh, you already said Maya Salvis, who we both agree is fantastic. But uh, who else? Name a couple other people for us. Uh, there's somebody who's much more politically conservative than I am. And she and I really tangled 20 years ago. She was kind of anti-harm reduction in the early years. But Sally Sattel, is uh, she's at a you know a somewhat conservative think tank, American Enterprise Institute, but um, I think she's really 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 provocative stuff, and I find that we're aligned not on everything, but she's a smart, thoughtful thinker on a whole um, host of issues, including the pain issue and the tobacco issue, um, and a range of others. Um, I, you know, there's there's a young journalist writing about psychedelics now, Shayla Love um, for Vice, who I just think is kind of cutting edge on a whole bunch of these things. I think David Nutt the British drug researcher, N-U-T-T, who was briefly the head of British drug policy till he got pushed out because he was too correct thinking. Um, but I pay attention to what to what he's doing um, out there. I think the British historian, Mike Jay, um, who I actually recently interviewed, I think it'll be up. You know, he has a new book on mescaline. But when it comes to a person who's broad thinking about the history of drugs and has done many books on history of drugs and on mental illness, I think uh, I think he's doing a great job. I admire Carl Hart, the Columbia professor, who's done two very provocative books and very good research. I don't agree with everything that Carl says either, but he's a good friend. He was on my board at DPA. And I think he's putting out things in a very raw way that's really provoking people. I mean, he came out as, you know, chairing the Columbia University Psychology Department while using heroin and even making comments like, I don't understand how anybody could share this department without using heroin, right? You know, so he likes being provocative, but I think he's on... putting out some bold ideas out there in a very important way. So, I mean, those, those are, I mean, I could probably go off a, a couple dozen more people, but there's some really smart, interesting people, you know, writing about drugs, drug policy um, of all, of all sorts. Now I'm, I'm going to be interviewing a, um, a guy who has a podcast called Crackdown, Garth Mullins, who's active Huge in Garth Vancouver. Yeah. And then there's the other podcast, uh, uh, Nar- Narcotic, I think it's called. Is it Zach? There's a few Zach. Zach Siegel, I think. Sure. That's another yeah. interesting one doing sort of cutting edge, you know, a little more, more, whereas mine goes a little broader. This one goes really deeply into some core harm reduction issues. But those are some good ones out there for getting some, uh, you know, creative uh, ideas and, and, and hearing from creative people. I cannot wait for the next season. I am such a big fan of the show. And Ethan, thank you not only for your show, but for your years of service in this area. It's greatly appreciated. Well, Jay, thank you for inviting me on your show. You know, you know, lots of luck with it and lots of luck in your, uh, I guess, your your town of Philadelphia, where there's, you know, issues. You know, we didn't talk about what's going on in Philadelphia. But uh, uh, by the way, one of my other forthcoming guests is Philippe Bougois, an anthropologist um, who spent a number of years studying drug markets and drug selling in Philadelphia. And so we'll be getting a little bit into the Philadelphia scene which we already did previously when I had your district attorney, Larry Krasner on. So it'll be a different angle, but listen, thanks very much for having me on and best of luck with your podcast as well. Back for their second season. I'm so thankful to have bookshop.org as a partner. 
When you buy a book on Bookshop, you not only support this show, you can also select your favorite local bookstore to get some of the proceeds. For me, I've chosen Harriet's, a black-owned bookstore here in Philadelphia. So next time you need a book, or if you want to check out any of the books we've profiled on this show, go to bookshop.org shop CYS. Again, that's bookshop.org shop CYS. Check them out today. Support us on Patreon. Check us out at patreon.com slash choose your struggle or at the link in your show notes. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. See, I, I remembered how to do that. <laughs> uh, Ethan was great. Uh, obviously, I, 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 you know, worked really hard. Um, the The goal for kicking off season three was to really start with some heavy hitters, you know, um, and we we got that i mean the the if you look at who um, was coming down on on these episodes you'll be like wow he's really starting this on the top and and that was a, a conscious goal because i i ended season 2 on such a high note um with nazinga that i was like i have to keep that going going into season 3 and, and obviously uh that was the case with with ethan and and the people who are going to follow him in the next couple of weeks so um Giant thank you to Ethan Nadelman. Uh, y'all know I'm such a big fan of his work. Obviously, uh, raised money two years ago for Drug Policy Alliance. I continue to be a donor myself. Um, they are one of the uh, partners for uh, Made It. You'll you'll hear an ad for Drug Policy Alliance, uh, one of the episodes. So um, yeah, just a giant giant fan of 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 that. And was just I, I found so much of what he said interesting. I, I, I like I said in the in the intro, I could have heard listened to him tell stories for for hours. Um, and, and if you like the conversation that he and I had, go tune into Psychoactive because it is that to to another degree. You know, I mean, I get to talk to Ethan. Ethan gets to talk to former heads of state and and guys like uh, people I admire, like Carl Hart and Maya Salovitz and all these incredible people. So, uh, tune in Psychoactive. And reach out to Ethan, you know, let him know that you heard him here and that you loved uh, hearing from him. Um, he will appreciate that. All right. Uh, so we have uh, the way we finish this show, which I had to remind myself with, is a a reading a card. Um, <laughs> for those of you tuned again for the first time, I try to leave everybody with two things. The first of which is a bit of an inspiration. Uh, you know, it, it 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 and then the second one is it's what's called a good egg, and I'll explain that again in a second here. Uh, the inspiration comes from cards. Uh, some some different sources. Uh, it started with just. Uh, oh man, what was the name of that company? Season one, <laughs> the cards I used all came from the same company, which was uh, Blurt. Oh, this one, <laughs> I'm using a card from them today too. The Blurt Foundation, they, they put out these cards with sort of inspirational sayings on them. Uh, I have a bunch of those. I, I That's what I used to sign off from season one. Uh, season two, I added another card pack in. And season three, I've added another book in to the mix. And so you'll be hearing some new stuff later in the season. But today, we're going to use a, a, a card from Blurt's Believe in Yourself card pack. Um, we're doing that because uh, Made It is dropping next week. More on that in a second. And uh, the, the, the process of creation, if, any, if, if you're listening and you've somehow made it without ever creating anything, you, you know, it goes with so excited is the beginning 
Um, and then you're, oh, this is okay. This is a little difficult. This is challenging. And then, oh my God, this thing I'm creating is terrible. Um, that's your low moment. And then the next one is a little bit better. It's not, this thing is terrible. It's I'm terrible. Uh, but this thing may be okay. And then it's, Hey, actually this thing is kind of good. And then, oh my God, this thing is amazing. Um, I am back on the, this thing is amazing uh, level for made it. Um, I spent weeks at that bottom, uh, like months of this is so dumb. Why am I doing this? This made it is going to be terrible. I am terrible. Uh, I joke about this on, in, in the, the episode one, the intro to the, the, the series, um, that like Lauren had to keep telling me, stop it. Like you're not terrible because I was so convinced that I just sucked. Um, so this is why we're using that card back. Uh, and we're going to go with, uh, this card right here. Our mistakes are, our mistakes are our teachers, not sticks with which to beat ourselves. Mistakes teach us what we meant to say. Boy, I'm struggling with this. And this card is a tongue twister. Uh, mistakes teach us what we might say or do differently next time. They allow us to grow, learn, and move forward. Um, my apologies for stumbling over that so much. Yes, that is true. Uh, I know that made it is not perfect. I'm, I, I know I was just talking to Sarah, uh, this morning about that. She is super excited. She's heard the series and she is very excited. Um, and I am too, but I'm struggling with the fact that it's not perfect. There are moments that I could fix. Uh, there's a lot I could fix and I have to just keep telling myself, like, it's not going to be perfect. You will keep finding little things like that, that you want to fix. Um, today, the, the thing that was bothering me was the sound quality of certain moments. Um, you know, there's other things like the transcripts. I don't have time to read through all the transcripts. I just don't. So I they're uploaded with a note that says, I'm so sorry. I did not have a chance to read through all this. Uh, obviously, with another month, I could probably do that, that kind of thing. But I, but I will always find something. Um, but that's okay. You know, made it will drop. Uh, I'm sure people, myself included, will point out some, some less than perfect moments and that's fine because it's not going to be the only season, you know, made it will, there will be a season two and hopefully a season three, four or five, whatever. So, uh, stuff to learn from. And, uh, yes, as this card said, we, we, we will know what to learn, uh, what to do better next time. So the second thing, as I mentioned, is a good egg. We finished with a good egg. And what that means is uh, just a good deed to go do this week. And, and, and you know, they are all over the map. I, I come up with them myself. I have a resource online that I use too. But uh, this one's going to be a little selfish to, <laughs> to kick off the season. Um, if you listen to last episode, season the kickoff to season one, you know that, you know, this is a time of change for Choose Your Struggle. And made it is something that I've worked so, 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 so hard on. So please, this is my ass. This is your good egg for the week. Go subscribe to the made it feed. It is in your show notes, uh, wherever you're searching, wherever you're listening to this, just search for choose your struggle presents and you should see the made it. Uh, stream right there. Share it around too. Um, if you like this show, do me the giant solid of posting on social media like hey i'm so excited for this new show you know i listen to jay's other show whatever whatever you want to say but that would mean a lot to me um and and you know it made it is is a completely different beast with a giant mission 
of helping raise awareness for this amazing organization that I that I am lucky to be a part of and, and also helping change narratives and end and, and stigma and all that kind of stuff. So uh, please go subscribe to Made It. But most of all, most importantly of all, as I <laughs> remembered that I like to sign off every week with, be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle. <laughs>